Welcome to Chatting with Chemeketa, the show where we talk about everything related to the college. Whether you're someone considering coming to Chemeketa, a current student, an alum, a member of the community, or part of our local business and industry, we've got you covered. I'm Jessica Howard, Chemeketa's president. And I'm Les Wilkes. We often talk about the value of a college education in this program, but did you know that adults in custody who take college classes and earn degrees or certificates tend to become productive members of society when they are released? Yeah, Les, it's, it's absolutely a transformative experience for these individuals. And it's true, society benefits enormously from educating adults in custody. But let's have our first guest and expert on the topic do the talking. Welcome, Chris Cotto. Thank you, Les and Jessica, for having me. An expert, yeah, that's a lot of pressure right there, but I'll do my best. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so, Chris, how did you? How did this program get started? Um, so, I'll start a little bit with the the history of the correctional institutions here in Salem. Uh, you may know that we have three correctional institutions here in the Salem area. Um, and just like everyone in higher ed, we love our acronyms. So <laughs> I'll start with OSP, which is Oregon State Penitentiary. It's the maximum security uh, facility here. It's been around since like the 1800s. It's like a really old facility and <laughs> everything that's involved in having a, operating an older facility. Uh, we have uh, o, uh, OSCI, which is our medium uh, security institution. And then we have, oh, OSCI, Oregon State Correctional Institution, and SCI, which is Santiam Correctional Institution, which is our minimum. And there's a educational presence in all of those institutions. Uh, it's been around for a couple decades now, and we have GED and ESOL programming happening there in both institutions. But uh, really what we're here to talk about today is our college inside program. So traditionally, AICs, um, in Oregon we don't call uh, incarcerated folks uh, Inmates, yeah. we call them AICs, adults in custody. Uh, so I'll be using that throughout the <laughs> throughout the interview. But our AICs um, have not been able to access the Pell Grant traditionally. That's just was li- written into the leg- legislation. I have one question, Chris Cotto. Yes. For those out there who don't know what the Pell Grant is, okay. can you explain what that is? Okay, I will do my best. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big deal. It's a huge source of of funding for higher education, right? Right. Um, the Pell Grant is, is reserved for those typically that fall into a, a lower socioeconomic uh, strata, strata yeah. of uh, society. And uh, th- as you can imagine, it's been challenging for AICs to further their education uh, when they don't have like access to any sorts of funds. And so um, one of the legislative ideas was to um, allow AICs to access this second chance Pell, this uh, parallel funding stream of uh, Pell Grant so they could continue with their education. And um, as many of you know, education is one of the best tools that we have at our disposal to reduce recidivism and to just provide that uh, hope that so many folks need for a better future once they re-enter the community. So um, that's Chemeketa, not to brag it or anything, but Chemeketa was the first uh, community college in Oregon to apply to be part of the Second Chance Pell program. And one of the like two or three dozen institutions across the nation uh, to get permission to do this with uh, 
our AIC is in all three of our correctional institutions. So Shemekin is like, like we, we like to be like the pioneers. We like to be the first to do stuff. And this was one of the uh, very cool things that Shemekin um, did and then has been doing even through the hard times during the pandemic where we had to basically like shut down programming. So what this is, is it's the opportunity for AICs to access the ch second chance pill, which there's a lot of complicated pieces to it, but basically um, this, along with the community college, uh, some different support funds for the community college, pays for AICs to get their AAOT, which is their associate's uh, degree, transfer degree, um, while they're incarcerated. So Chris, so a lot of this seems to be around financial aid, in this case, federal financial aid, which is what Pell is. Right. And it's also about programming, right? So the 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 programming that we offer in these correctional institutions that are in our district, they're right here close to Salem or in Salem. Mm -hmm. It's the pre-college work, right? It's the getting, working towards a high school credential, which seems to be separate from the college courses proper, right? And so do they need Pell to do that first category of coursework? In other words, to working towards getting their GED uh, they do not need to access Pell for that. Uh, the DOC, Department of Corrections, has a, a separate grant that they award all of the community colleges that have a presence in the correctional institutions across Oregon. Um, that's a f separate funding stream. And then when folks are finished with their high school equivalency, um, their, their GED, then they can apply for, as you said, Jessica, financial aid through uh, receive the Pell Grant, and then continue their education. When we talk about Pell, we're really talking about the college courses that we offer in the prison, and, we're, and we call it a College Inside. Exactly. Isn't that fascinating, <laughs> Les? A College Inside. Yeah. Now, is this all kind of online type of courses, or do they get to come in? That, classes? That's an excellent question. As you can imagine, it's very challenging to uh, get internet access uh, inside of the prisons. <laughs> yeah. um, although there are limited ways where um, AICs can er interact with technology through tablets and um, some computer labs, but for all intents and purposes, the programming that happens in the College Inside program is delivered by faculty that get into the go into the prisons and it's not like this watered down version of what they're offering here on campus it's the exact same coursework the exact same numberings the exact same expectations for rigor and homework and um, meeting the outcomes of the class so for example a psych 104 class on campus would be the exact same thing that we're offering inside so it's up to snuff so say. they come they come in the, the instructors come in to the exactly Prisons, is that okay to say prisons these days? I don't know. But, it you know, is, yeah. prisons, yeah. institutions, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I will just say that we have excellent uh, faculty uh, in all of the departments, the math department, the uh, humanities are taught by excellent faculty that really have a heart for this work. As you can imagine, it's, it's different than a traditional classroom setting, but so rewarding, uh, the stories that they share with me and the the, the way that we're able to affect folks' lives and families' lives and communities for the long term. So, Chris, tell tell us about the the key role that the advisors play, or the tutors, or what um, it, within this prison environment. One of our key personnel who 
I would I, I see them as a bridge basically between everything that happens with DOC and the college inside program and then what needs to happen as far as financial aid and navigating that complex world here on campus. Uh, we have one advisor who serves as the liaison so to speak, uh, between our financial aid department and the AICs uh, in each of the, f- the institutions. And actually right now that position is vacant, so I'm really, <laughs> I'm really... Um, Unless there's an opportunity for you here. <laughs> I, 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 I'm always faced with opportunities every episode. Every episode. But, but what about the people inside the prison who help the inmates? So we have a coordinator, uh, educational coordinator in each of our uh, three institutions. And then what about, aren't there other AICs that assist kind of, and I don't know if they're, if we call them tutors or if there's an mm-hmm. official category for them, but I always found it incredible because we have we have graduations for the folks who get, for instance, the full two-year degree or some certificate mm-hmm. or some, you know, whatever the credential is. And so we, we go inside, we, myself, members of the board, other administrators, et cetera, we'll go in for these graduation ceremonies, which are incredibly moving because the families come in, et cetera, and you see these these guys and they are male. These are all male facilities. Um, and then they, gra- they, you know, they're 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 getting their degree. It's a ceremonial thing. It's quite moving. And then you see all these sort of other people over here to the side, and those are the folks who are AICs who helped them, who maybe already have a degree or something like that. I always found that group of people really mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. The. The, the structure of education inside the prisons is, is really cool because we have, as I said, we have full-time instructors in some of the institutions. We have coordinators in each of the institutions. But the ones that um, really are there on a day-to-day basis in the trenches are these AIC tutors, right? So that's their job is the, the AICs get um, employed by DOC. Uh, they get paid. Uh, to do this work, and they're sitting alongside the students, make, helping sure that they make their educational goals. So it's it's a challenge to bring in a lot of staff and a lot of faculty from Shemekata, in a way outsource that <laughs> to the AIC population. And it's a total win-win because um, these, it's just like a guys, it's, it's a three-men facilities. Um, they have a lot of education that they bring with them, and so why not capitalize on those gifts and talents that they, they bring to, to spread it to the rest of the institution? Is there any kind of vetting system? I mean, if someone's in for life, would they also just have an opportunity to do this? Or yeah, I'm saying like, you know, if, if somebody's maybe getting out in six months, yeah, it's a good thing to kind of, you know, how's that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So we do have parameters around who can uh, enroll in the program. There's an application process. There's an essay that AIC is right. And yes, there is a, a requirement that they have to be within this kind of golden window <laughs> but they, they can't be too close oh. to the gate because they won't be able to finish the programming oh. and if they're you know a lifer then uh, it comes into question like are we uh, the utility yeah of the, the utility and the yeah. long-term benefit uh, of them however that being said there are other institutions across the state that are reevaluating that policy because Lifers aren't always lifers, and things change in with the states and the legislation um, and I have seen um guys that have been on death row, for example, that are no longer on death row. So things can change all the time. And there's an argument to be made that the utility of educating a lifer goes 
um, beyond them just getting released and going back into the community. So um, I'm actually meeting with the OSP. There's a lifers club uh, at OSP, and I'm, I'm meeting with them because they're petitioning to be part of the program. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in having that dialogue and that conversation. Um, and it was one of the most articulate <laughs> petitions that I've ever gotten. Uh, so I'm very excited to, to see what they, they have to say and, and what their proposal is. Well, and it's fascinating because, you know, the benefits of education can be measured in an infinite number of ways, mm-hmm. right? And so so I wonder, uh, in terms of how you measure the effectiveness of this, we know how much it costs to put people in a facility like these three that you've mentioned. And then we also know what the return on investment is for someone who goes through this kind of program. Can you give us some figures that would help? Just like, you know, I love like the data. You know, I love I'm, the stats. I know you do. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a softball here. <laughs> She's, she's feeding you. <laughs> I know, totally lead. All right, um, just a few numbers that I like to go over that are, are pretty recent. Um, for every $1 million investment in incarceration, we prevent about 350 crimes. However, in contrast, the same investment in corrections education at all levels, all across the spectrum that we've just talked about, will prevent more than 600 crimes. So it's almost a like two-time uh you know, twice as good of an investment. Um, recidivism is always something that we look at, and there's about a 43% reduction uh, on pro- of prolays who participate in some sort of pr- prison education program. And uh, so all in all, all things considered, all the variables, there's a return on investment anywhere between 1 in 5 and 1 in 12, depending on, you know, where, where and how you're measuring it. So I, I would say it's a good bang for our buck. Absolutely. It's so compelling. I mean, it's compelling in terms of the numbers. It's compelling in terms of seeing the, the lives being transformed. Such an important part of what we do at Chemeketa. Um, and for our listeners, if you have any questions about what we've just covered or comments about today's show, please write to us at chatter at chemeketa.edu and we'll answer your questions through email or on an upcoming show. Thank you so much, Chris, for stopping by the studio today. Thank you, Jessica and Les, for having me and letting me talk about something I love. Thanks, Chris. Okay, well, it's time for our mid-show break, but we'll be back in just a moment to talk about apprenticeship opportunities. Stay tuned. Does having a career in a medical field interest you? Consider Anesthesia Technology. The Willamette Valley is in need of trained anesthesia technologists who work alongside anesthesiologists at our local hospitals. It's exciting and engaging work. So if you're the type of person who wants to incorporate your caring for people into your career, Anesthesia Technology is for you. Learn more at go.chemeketa.edu slash anesthesia. Welcome back to Chatting with Chemeketa. Joining us now is Francisco Saldivar, our brand new Director of Apprenticeship Programs at Chemeketa. Welcome, Francisco. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Jessica and Les, for inviting me on the show to talk about something that I very much, very much love to talk about, myself and apprenticeships. So. <laughs> We're looking forward to it. So, Francisco... You're new to Chemeketa. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you ultimately came to the college? All right. Um, it's a, a long journey. I'm originally uh, born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. I, I attended... Um, Go Bears. Commu- yep. The Bears, right? Mm-hmm. The Bears. Yep. Cubs. Uh, the Cubs. Uh, no, yep. I'm a Cubs fan. Yeah, Cubs, Cubs yeah. fan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, I went... Uh, 
attended community college at Joliet Junior College, which, as you, you know... Do but, you know that's where the community college movement began in 1901? Yes, I do. Yep, I have a... I have a and don't judge me, I have a, a beer stein that I got when I was a college student that says the 1901 mm-hmm. on it and a crest of Joliet Junior College. So I attended Joliet Junior College and then um, I was looking for ways to fund further my college education further, right? Um, I, I'm a you know, second generation uh, American. My dad was born in Mexico. Uh, my mother's uh, dad was uh, from Ireland. And uh, I'm first generation college student. None of my my uh, brothers or sisters had gone to college yet, and so I didn't really know about the Pell Grant that you talked about mm-hmm. earlier. Um, so I was like, "Hey, what am I going to do for school after paying for junior college?" And I decided to join the Air Force um, for them to help pay for that. So I did the Air Force. I was a uh, avionics technician on F-15s, F-16s. Um, wow. Served uh, in uh, during 9/11 and uh, during Iraqi freedom in the Middle East. Um, came back while I was in the service, uh, completed my bachelor's degree, um, and then started teaching the trades and working in the trades. I became um, an electrician, worked uh, for the computer rail service, uh, uh, taught uh, in the evenings as an adjunct instructor and full-time um, at different places in Chicago, and then eventually landed in Montana. And I was a professor of sustainable energy at Montana State University Billings, um, I got went through the tenure process, and I thought, hey, you know, I want to want to dip into some administration. And uh, I took a trip with my kids. Um, I, I did at an auction, a, a, a university fundraising event. I was a proud winner of a, a, a week trip to Manzanita Beach here in Oregon on the coast. And so I took my kids uh, on vacation. And uh, while we're a few days in. Uh, the youngest two were like, Dad, we want to live in Oregon on the coast. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, I'll start looking for some positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wound up at Southwestern Oregon Community College, and I was a CTE dean there. And um, my, uh, <clears throat> my wife worked for Montana Department of Transportation and then got moved to Oregon. But took a position at, in Salem. And so with that, I decided to move to Salem. And then I worked uh, I, uh, building homes, doing contractor work, because I keep my foot in that door. Um, but all along, I have looked at Shemakata knowing when I worked at um, my CTE time, uh, the words on the street that this is a great place uh, to work at and go to school at. Uh, as you know, I got to travel to all the different 17 community colleges and meet all the faculty and administrators. And and uh, I could tell you that I knew Shemekita was a place the, uh, for me to be in. And so um, as I you know, kept an eye on what positions were open and this position came up and I thought that someone must have wrote it for me. So I figured you already knew who I was before I... We've been tracking uh, you yeah, since birth, tracking, Francisco. Right, right before, that's what I thought. Um, anyway, so I'm probably getting a little too winded on this. Um, I'm also, uh, I will say this, my daughter is starting her first day today oh. at, at Shemekita. Um, everybody and starts today. Yeah, everyone family. starts the whole family here. And she was uh, quick to point out that 
Um, she got accepted at Chemeketa before I did. I so see. It's good to remember that. I need to keep that. Yes, yeah. I have to remember that. She was she was accepted first. Um, but I'm excited to be here, um, and I'm excited about being the new director of apprenticeships, and I really look forward to um, taking apprenticeships and, you know, uh, reaching out to areas that Chemeketa doesn't offer um, areas that the community has needs uh, to see where we can we can build apprenticeships and provide more opportunities for uh, future apprentices in the area. So Francisco, a lot of people, when I'm out and about and talking about what we do as a community college, right, most people have in their mind one of two images or ideas. One is that it's like a university setting where people come into a classroom and they and they take a course like English or math or history or social science or any of those, right, or science labs. And so it's very much kind of a university model. Um, and then after 11 weeks or whatnot, then you get your grade and then you go to the next course. The other image is the career and technical education image, which is to use old language, more like voc tech and think about, you know, applied learning and, and this sort of thing. But very rarely do people understand that apprenticeship is something that we also do at the community college. So I'm wondering if you could tell us how does that work? Because most people, they they just it's like two different worlds so they don't understand how they can come together sure absolutely so um you know pulling off on that you know beginning education going to Juilliard junior college mentioning the first community college apprenticeships date back to the early uh, colonial time in the united states and and then, of course, in, in Europe, way farther than that. Um, so an apprenticeship is essentially uh, somebody who gets employed or has it a sponsor, we call it, which is an employer. And that sponsor um, agrees to meet certain requirements that we're going to give you so many hours of training within a certain area. And the apprentice uh, agrees to provide work and learn the trade, a skill. So for us, we have four apprenticeships uh, and a pre-apprenticeship, but the four apprenticeships are plumbing trade, HVACR, sheet metal, and electrician. And so a sponsor hires them on. That apprentice goes to work during the work hours that the sponsor has set up. And it's typically your, your you know, seven to three type work, but it could be different. When I was an apprentice as an electrician, um, I worked for a place that worked in the evening because the city of Chicago is pretty busy and with, and so you, you got to do what you got to do. So I worked mm-hmm. at night. So I took my related training, which I'm going to get to in the evening, which is what it is. So unlike a traditional college student or maybe our traditional CT programs, you do your working, nine to five or your whatever your hours are are five or six days a week and then you take related training through through Tremecata in the evening and it's uh depending on the program that you're in it's a monday tuesday classes or uh a wednesday thursday classes that you take in the evening um some of them some of them do like a day where they do a distance piece and then they day they come in and do the lab so the, that would the be related like, like online yes like okay. online so they'll they'll have some some will do zoom some you know covid made some changes where where mm-hmm. some of the even the apprenticeships adjusted a little bit and so that's the life you for 4 years it's typically by hours it's not by years so 
for our apprentices, they're, most of them are 8,000 hours. So if you do the math in your head, 40 hours a week is 2,080 hours So for a year. So they got to do this for at least four years. And it's not just 8,000 hours of work. It's 8,000 hours divided into certain categories that they have to meet a certain percentage within that category for it to count. So once they do that, they do the hours of related training, which is we transcripted as credits but it shows on you know the apprentice do it by hours 756 you know related hours of coursework that they do let's for example and, and they're being paid for that yeah so employees. during this time okay. yeah that's good good point yeah, jessica i'm glad you brought <laughs> that up like so unlike all of the question, other jessica. right Thank unlike you. all the other things we have here uh, apprentices start out when they have their sponsor they're being paid on a scale and that scale has 10 steps and those steps are every six months they get related. It's based on how many hours they work. And um, once they get past those, is it 10 or maybe it's eight periods. But once they get to a certain point, they get raises automatically based on their hour work of completion. Now, the 8,000 hours, is that the daytime work? Yes, okay. daytime right. work. Not, so they not, have. You know, I was thinking like yep. eight thousand hours of class time. No, no, no. <laughs> that's eight thousand hours of daytime work. <laughs> you're a neurosurgeon. No, right? right. Yeah, you're right. Right. Yeah. Right. Eight thousand hours of daytime work, or okay. could be nighttime work, and then the related training is is usually seven hundred ish or so. Okay. Um, basically, that has to be a minimum, I think, of a hundred and. 20 or so hours, but that depends on the type of apprenticeship. Most of the ones we have are, are over 700 hours of related training on top of the 8,000. Okay. So explain what the Joint Apprenticeship Training Committee is. Oh, all right. So the sponsors I talked about, uh, which are training agents, but what happens is a, as a trade collectively get together and they say, we need to have a mechanism or group. We're going to gather our, our resources together and train apprentices as a, as a committee. Several employers decide to get together and form a JATC, Joint Apprenticeship Training Committee. And they register through the state, which is uh, the state organization is uh, BOLI, which is the Bureau of Labor and Industries. And they recognize that group and say, okay, as long as you meet these requirements and you train in a certain way, after those requirements are met by each apprentice, they can apply, take a test, and they get a journeyman card sent by Bowley that says, okay, I am a journeyman and I can I meet these requirements and I can pull permits to put in HVAC systems or pull change your hot water heater or put your new service in, those type of things. Uh, the, the committees which can grow as employers are added. Uh, they have ratios on how they have to follow on how many apprentices they can have for journeymen. But that collective group um, is what forms uh, our committee that allows, that is sponsors, the committee members, which are called training agents, eight agents sponsor our apprentices. And what's nice about the committee um, is that you can move freely within that group of employers. So you may have a sponsor, um, XY, heating XYZ, and um, maybe you're not getting the right kind of training hours you need or, or that, that XYZ company wants to, and it's by a group, they say, why don't you go work for ABC company and learn this mm. task because mm. we don't have the yeah. tasks. And so they can move freely within the JTC mm -hmm. uh, of sponsors so they can get all of their related training. And it's, just, and it's designed and encouraged by that so that they can get all the hours and be that true journeyman and not just specialize in mm. one area and lacking in others. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is that, you know, we kind of went through a period in the United States where the trades weren't necessarily as valued 
as they had been earlier when we had more shop classes and things like that within our K-12 setting. And what's becoming apparent today with uh, so many baby boomers retiring is that there are lots of jobs available and that they're actually incredibly good paying jobs. They are absolutely. I can attest to this. As much as I, as much as I love this new position, I, I could, I could say with confidence that a journeyman in the trades will make more money than I will make as a director here at the college, and that's a testament to the skills that are required, the hours, the eight thousand hours related training that people put in, and just the the demand for quality labor. Uh, you know, you can't build a road, a house, a building. We can't add new you know, structures or repair structures at our own um, college without having the skilled labor. And so the job is a career that you can take wherever you go to whatever state or wherever life brings you. And the wages you'll get uh, may vary from state to state and location to location, but you can, I can be sure that they're living wages and they will continue uh, to increase. And I would recommend that pathway for most people, especially if you like using your hands. Are there easier jobs? Absolutely. Uh, So you don't always have to work outside. You don't always have to work in the cold or the rain. But you can be assured that you'll be in demand. And like I said, the, the living wage is, is key. You can, you, can, you can have a living wage. Really briefly, can you tell us about the pre-apprenticeship program? Yes. So pre-apprenticeship is uh, something that we started. Uh, we have some grants that help uh, fund with that. And a pre-apprenticeship differs slightly from regular apprenticeship because it is a short term. It's one term that you take and it gives you these basic skills that really help you in apprenticeship and it's not just setting you up skills wise what i didn't get to share is is when you apply to be an apprentice you get rated on on scored based on different characters and 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 what you have done in college and high school and class you take pre-apprenticeship gives you a huge boost boost and puts you up to the top of that list so if you do the pre-apprenticeship and then you want to be an apprentice in hvacr or sheet metal you will be move to the top of that pool you'll be quick it'll be faster for you to get pulled for uh by a sponsor nice. so so exciting and so much we really don't have enough time to to say much else except that maybe we need to have you back on uh francisco but i would say you know this is such an innovative program i'm so happy that you've joined our team here at the college i can't wait to see where you take apprenticeship thank you so much for being on the show oh i appreciate it thank you very much and for our listeners if you want to know more about what you've just heard be sure to email us at chatter at chemeketa.edu you can also send us comments about the show or suggestions for future topics and with that we are tying a bow onto this show but more episodes are in the works with lots of great information so tune in again next time same chat time same chat channel For Chatting with Chemeka, I'm Les Wilkes. And I'm Jessica Howard. Bye. Bye.